I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. The Literary Life this week is being brought to you from a very darkened uh, Books and Books in Carl Gables, where we normally do our live uh, podcasts from. Uh, we hope to soon be open. We are open online, and I can't tell you the kind of support that our community has been giving us, and I'm sure all of you listening have been giving the same kind of support to booksellers all across the country, whether it's through visiting their own uh, online stores or through bookshop.org, which benefits independent bookstores as well. My guest today is Jim Mustick, the author of a book that I've been enjoying immensely while I've been locked down. It's one of the great, great books to browse through. And it's, fa- it's given me lots of recommendations for myself, uh, books that I had missed and books that I had forgotten. It's called A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die, a a life-changing list. Jim has been, and I feel very close to him, because he's been a bookseller pretty much his whole life in various iterations. Jim started something that I remember uh, from years and years ago called A Common Reader. Customers of mine would come into the bookshop holding a copy of The Common Reader in their hand, and they would go, I'm sure you don't have this book, but it's the one I really, really want. So I would start getting the common reader just to make sure that I was carrying everything that Jim was recommending. 
because it was better for me than NPR was in terms of selling books in those days. So, Jim, welcome to The Literary Life. Mitchell, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. How are you doing these days? I'm doing well. Fortunately, everybody in my family, uh, immediate and otherwise, is well and healthy. And we are navigating these uh, surreal times uh, very well. And so we're blessed. That's great. Um, so let's go back in time and talk a little bit about how you got started with a common reader. How did that happen? Because I see a direct line from that to this book, exactly. Yes, uh, the book is kind of a, a, a memorial-sized version of a common reader. But for, for your listeners who aren't familiar with the catalog that I ran for 20 years, a common reader was a digest-sized five-by-eight catalog printed on uh, newsprint paper that we'd mail out uh, at our peak. We had about a quarter of a million subscribers around the country. And in it, I and my colleagues would write about books very personally. So you can imagine it uh, today as a book blog, but it was before the internet uh, was available to us. So we'd write about the books, print up a catalog. The catalogs were generally about 144 pages long. We'd send one out every three and a half weeks, and we had a very loyal following. And I got into that because I had been a bookseller in a small independent store in Briarcliff Manor, New York, and I loved selling books, but I also loved writing. And when I realized my uh, half-baked dream of becoming a novelist uh, was, was not in the cards, I took to writing about books, which came more congenial, and the catalog gave me a great deadline every few weeks to, to write about. And I could sell books. I could sell only the books I wanted to sell and felt strongly about. And uh, I didn't have to be in a shop on Saturday or Sunday because we take all our orders by mail back then and over the phone. And uh, I did that for 20 years. And uh, one of the joys of having published a thousand books to read before you die is going around to bookshops and libraries to talk about the book upon its publication, um, running into many former subscribers uh, who I had never met because it was a mail order business and just uh, their uh, joy in being reconnected back to the catalog and what it meant to them was very gratifying for me. Well, I can tell you, you not only did that, but what was so beautiful about what you did is you unearthed books that were forgotten and you would bring them back. Uh, can you remember a couple that, that you did that, that had a great impact? Yes, we did. Um, we ended up bringing back, uh, publishing under our own imprint, about 150 books that we uh, found uh, or loved and, and were out of print and not available to us. Some of, and then we did probably an equal number with publishers. We would, we would partner with the publisher and say, we'll take uh, a big position, as they say in the book, to sell in our catalog to help them uh, get through the first print run. And two that stick out, uh, one particularly, is a book called A Mass for the Dead by William Gibson. Not William Gibson mm -hmm. of Neuromancer and science fiction fame, Pattern Recognition, also a great writer, but this William Gibson is the man who wrote, most famous for writing the play The Miracle Worker about uh, Helen Keller, 
and her teacher, which became a movie um, later on. But A Mass for the Dead is, is his memoir of his parents, which is, was a book that uh, my mother adored, which I finally came around to reading, and I adored as well. So we tracked down the rights, and um, I think it was through Simon & Schuster at the time. The book had originally come out 1967 or 1968. Uh, and had been out of print for a long time. And as we were going to press with the book, I had had no communication with Gibson, and it occurred to me that he might not even know. So I tracked him down and went up to see him uh, in the Berkshires. He lived uh, outside of Great Barrington and uh, had a great conversation with him, and he was thrilled to see the book brought back into print. So that's a great one. Uh, and another one is a book of Arctic exploration called The Worst Journey in the World by Apsley Cherry Garrard. Uh, Cherry Garrard was one of the members of Scott's last expedition uh, and uh, not the final party of Scott who, were, who all uh, unfortunately lost their lives, but at another camp. But he came back and wrote a book about that experience, which really is, uh, to me, the best book about Arctic exploration. And it's wonderfully well written. It's wry and very funny. And I think, I think it was A. Alvarez, the writer and critic, who said that this book is to travel writing what War and Peace is to fiction. <laughs> and it's just marvelous. It had been out of print here. So we... Uh, Connected, I connected with Herman Graff, his publisher at the time, at Carolyn Graff, uh, and he brought out an edition. We took a lot of copies. Is, we it, still is it still print. in print? Is, hmm? it, is it still, is it still, it's still in print, print now? Yes. Yeah. Now that, I think there's a Penguin edition oh. of it now, too. And Repeat one of the, the things. I love it again. The Worst Journey in the World. All right. I love has a great title. Yes. And um, we, we found that because this was part of the fun of the catalog. We were carrying other books of Arctic exploration. And one of our customers wrote us a letter saying you have all these books, which are terrific, but you don't have the best one. And that reader told us about it. We went out and tracked it down and, uh, and had great success with it. Uh, and, but that happened a lot. Part of the real fun of that business was the many letters. And in those days, there were lots of handwritten letters, typewritten letters. And then when email came in, emails recommending books that people were passionate about. Many of those books ended up finding their way into a thousand books to read before you die. Well, it's the highest calling of what we all do as booksellers, which is to be guides and to yes. guide people and to unearth things. And that's what you've done in a thousand books to read before you die. So this became a natural progression. Talk about how this book came into existence. Uh, while I was doing the catalog, uh, Peter Workman, who was a great publisher, who I know you knew, uh, founder of Workman Publishing, had published a book called 1,000 Places to See Before You Die by Patricia Schultz, which was phenomenally successful. Peter was a friend of my wife Margot and, and mine, and he was a great fan of A Common Reader. And every month when a new issue of the catalog came out, he would page through it. We'd have various collections of books and he would call me and tell me what books of his I should have on those pages. Um, but uh, after the success of A Thousand Places, he decided he wanted to do one on books. And he asked me if I'd be interested. 
And I said, yes. So we signed a contract for that book. And 14 years later, I delivered the thousand page manuscript. <laughs> it's a, it was a daunting task. It yes, seemed it easier, seemed easier when you just brought it up to Peter, I'm sure. Well, he, he brought it up to the, me and I was, yeah. I was eager to jump at it. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but the result is, uh, as, as the you result know, is, the book. result is a gorgeous, gorgeous book. I'll explain it to the people listening. It's about a thousand pages and it's done just beautifully. It's got headbands. It's got a beautiful cover and it's got an epigram, which I think gives you a sense of the heart of what, of, 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 of what Jim has done here. Uh, and he's quoting Virginia Woolf and he says, the only advice indeed that one person can give another about reading is to take no advice to follow your own instincts, to use your own reason, to come to your own conclusions. If this is agreed between us, then I feel at liberty to put forward a few ideas and suggestions because you will not allow them to fetter that independence, which is the most important quality that a reader can possess. So you never get a sense in reading this book that uh, Jim is saying, this is the one you must read. What he's doing is, He's presenting this list in a very, very democratic way. It's presented by author. So it ends up with these very interesting um, uh, juxtapositions of books, which allow for incredible browsing. It's like what you would do when you were, it's, it's basically like surfing the internet, but it's a book <laughs> or browsing in a bookshop. Well, I think, um, I think, I hope it's closer to, Browsing in a bookshop because you can go in and look for something. You may be looking for something specific. Uh, in my case, I think people pick up the book and look to see if their favorite books and authors are in it. But as you do that, something catches your eye that you weren't expecting. And in a bookstore. Yeah, like have, yeah it, same thing uh, happens. Oh, yep. You have like Annie Dillard right next to Isaac Benison. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. And you know that a reader of any a reader of any dealer would like Isaac Dennison yeah. probably. My favorite juxtaposition is um, Cormac McCarthy's *The Road*. This is a dark apocalyptic novel. Is on one page, and you turn the page, and there's *Make Way for Ducklings* by Robert McCloskey, <laughs> because the book is for you know has books for all ages. So that that kind of surprise and serendipity is is so important oh. to our lives as readers. You know, going through this pandemic. Uh, I think we should all be reading picture books by wonderful authors at this yes. point, just Indeed. to bring some joy to our lives. So you, I, I mean, this is a crazy question to ask someone like you, but uh, it's always crazy when, when somebody asks it of me, and I'm sorry to do this to you. But, you know, in all of your reading, and you, you read more than probably anyone I know, what, have you got a favorite or a few favorites that, that come to you? Yes, um, I do. They change from day to day. You know, I usually love the book I'm in the middle of, but uh, one of the, the really most rewarding characteristics in the life of a reader is the way you carry books with you over time and maybe dip back into them uh, or read them uh, again. One of those for me is George Eliot's Middlemarch, the great 19th century British novel. 
about a young woman named Dorothea Brooke. And what's marvelous about it is that the narrative voice, which is third person, uh, is the most intriguing character guiding us through this uh, British city uh, of Middlemarch with all the different characters and telling Dorothea's story. And George Eliot is so smart that she's able to extract from the experience of her characters lenses that make us look at our own lives. So what happens while you're reading the book is you want to know what's going to happen to Dorothea, but you're also saying, how am I doing in my own life? What's going to happen next for me? So it's a rich experience. When I read it in college, when I was 19, I thought it was the wisest book I ever read. And I go back and read it every five or 10 years and it gets wiser and wiser the more experience that I have. Uh, it can be daunting to pick up a six or 700 page novel that isn't exactly fast paced, but if any reader has been uh, thinking about reading Middlemarch, I highly recommend the audiobook read by the actress Juliet Stevenson, which is a wonderful okay. way to, to go through it. The second book uh, is somewhat different, um, but just as important to me. Uh, the author is Russell Hoban, who is famous for two different things. One is, at the start of his career, he wrote a series of picture books about a badger named Francis. So Bread and Jam for Francis, Best Friends for Francis. Those picture books are still popular today. Uh, and he went on to write, uh, as he matured as a writer, a series of speculative novels, the most famous of which is probably Ridley Walker which kind of invents its own language. But in between, his first full-length novel, which was ostensibly written for 12-year-olds, is a book called The Mouse and His Child, which is enormously meaningful to me. And I believe it has as much to say about being alive on the earth as any book I've ever read. And I would say that for readers of any age. It's about a wind-up toy, uh, a father mouse holding hands with a child mouse, when you wind a key in the back of the father, he dances around the circle and lifts his child up and down. The toy starts out very happy in a toy shop with other toys, is brought home to a family, has a wonderful uh, experience uh, being played with by a child, gets exiled to the attic and then thrown out into the dump. And when it gets to the dump, things get harrowing and it's a it's a marvelous story about how life calls on us to become more than what we thought we could be um, and it's particularly poignant now uh, in in its sense of of being thrown from one world into another and having to to cope in a new way so the mouse and his child by russell hoban and Middlemarch as well. Middlemarch, yeah. What, you know, as we're all, um, most of us have been sheltering in, even though things are opening up a little bit, is there a kind of book that we should be reading now? Well, I think the, the wonderful thing about reading is that it's as uh, various as any room full of people can be. And I think people should be reading whatever speaks to them. In times like these, some people like to uh, go deeper into things and read about 
pandemics and people in danger and other people like to read for, to to escape so i would be i wouldn't prescribe something for everyone except to say that reading itself whatever you're reading is a wonderful way to um, enrich the longest and most important conversation we have in our lives which is the one in our own heads as, as we're you know going. jim i'm finding people are wanting to read travel books is there a travel book that you'd recommend my favorite travel book uh is one that i discovered while i was having dinner with my wife and some friends people hadn't met and when the woman next to sitting next to me found out i was writing a book called a thousand books to read before you die she wanted to talk about a specific book because we were talking about italy and she said do you know what the best travel book about italy is and having been a bookseller at that point for more than three decades i was making a short list in my head and said it's going to be one of these and i said no what and she mentioned a book that i had never heard of by an author i had never heard of and the book is called the surprise of cremona it's written by a woman named edith templeton written in the second half of the 1950s and it's about her travels as a woman traveling alone through the smaller cities in in italy so not Venice, Florence, and Rome, but Cremona, Urbino, Padua. And she is so observant and so funny and so marvelous that uh, I highly recommend that if you can find it. Oh, that's a great, that's a great suggestion. Um, I know, you know, you say you don't like to be prescriptive, but your knowledge is so broad that I remember prior to us getting on, online, I told you how much that I like William Maxwell, and you told me about uh, these letters that William Maxwell and Sylvia Warner wrote. Yes. And uh, it's something, you want to talk a little bit about that? This is a marvelous, uh, William Maxwell is a great writer, novelist, So Long, See You Tomorrow, several other novels. Uh, but, was but he was for, a great editor as well. He was the fiction editor of The New Yorker for decades. Sylvia Townsend Warner was one of his writers. And there's a book called The Elements of Lavishness, which uh, collects their correspondence. I love reading books of letters. I find letters and diaries uh, great reading in times like these when uh, your concentration isn't what it might be because they come in you know, well-described segments. But this decades-long correspondence between Maxwell and Warner, it's literate, it's funny, it's human and personal. And, and um, if you love books, it's the kind of book that, that you can just get lost in and pick up anywhere and just and read around it. Now, you've done some very interesting things around A Thousand Books to Read. You've started a website. You also yep. do something called Battle of the Books. Yep. Uh, you've really been able to extend this much further than just between the covers of a book. So talk about your thousandbooks2read.com and what one can find there. One of the things I was hoping to do with the book is to start a conversation about not just the books I wrote about in my book, but the books that were left out. Uh, and authors that either I didn't have space for or I didn't know about. Um, and in our conversations traveling around the country, uh, the Q&A with readers after I talk about the book were fantastic because the advocacy that people would be so eloquent in, in advancing for certain books was just 
you know, catnip for me. So we created a website at 1000books2read.com. That's 1000books2read.com, where you can view my list, you can comment on it, you can agree or disagree, but most importantly, you can also add a book of your own that's not on the list. So I invite your listeners, as I've invited readers all around the country to come to the website, to explore it, to add new books for what I call the next 1000 or the afterlife edition. Uh, and there's lots of things to discover there. Also out of that, uh, an idea that my wife Margot had at one of our events was, why don't we make the, the kind of Q&A where people talk about books they love its own event. So we started something called Battle of the Books, which we've been doing at libraries and bookstores, where in collaboration with the library bookstore, we invite five people from the local community. Uh, we've had writers, television hosts, uh, legislators, uh, journalists, uh, bakers, um, shop owners. They pick a book that's not in my book and they get to pitch it to an audience for four or five minutes and then the audience votes. And it's a wonderful evening of bookishness and, and reading uh, that, uh, that has been tremendously successful. We had a whole bunch scheduled for this spring and summer that we've had to cancel because of the uh, pandemic. But we did the first virtual one last week and it was marvelous. We had 250 people online listening to five people uh, talk about a book that they loved. And uh, it was much more successful than I ever thought it could have been. We'll be doing one at Books and Books as well. We're talking about trying to get a virtual battle of the books going. I can't, I can't wait. You'll see, I mean, the, the, uh, it, it's, it's disorienting talking to um, a screen when you know there's 250 people listening. But I can see the comments in the chat going on, and people were, were very uh, kind and excited about it. So um, those Battle of the Books are another thing. And attached to the website and the battle, we have a newsletter. If you go to the website, you can sign up for my newsletter where I talk about all kinds of things. It's kind of a common reader on the fly. That's terrific. Well, I want to I want to give you an opportunity to have the last word by reading something from the book, but before I do that, I have to I have to read this incredible uh, comment about the book that Ken Burns, the great Ken Burns, wrote uh, about a thousand books to read before you die. He says, if you've ever doubted that books were the greatest invention of all time, and that they carry within them our collective memories and dreams, as well as any semblance of intelligence we have as a species, pick up this book and start reading. Because to be frank, going through this period that we're going through, I've had my doubts a little bit about <laughs> us as a species. And when you go through this book, it is a complete sense of renewal that we all can have. Well, thank you for saying that and for reading that quote. That that did leave me speechless, I have to say. <laughs> so would you read, you have, you, you've written so beautifully in the book. Would you read from I'm going to read you a little bit from the introduction, which kind of talks about what I thought I was doing. Once people know you are writing a book called 1000 Books to Read Before You Die, 
You can never enjoy a dinner party in quite the way you did before. No matter how many books you've managed to consider, and no matter how many pages you've written, every conversation with a fellow reader is almost sure to provide new titles to seek out, or more worryingly, to expose an egregious omission or a gap in your knowledge, to say nothing of revealing the privileges and prejudices, however unwitting, underlying your points of reference. For years, a thousand books felt like far too many to get my head around, but now it seems too few by several multiples. So let me say what already should be obvious. This book is neither comprehensive nor authoritative. It is meant to be an invitation to a conversation, even a merry argument about the books and authors that are missing, as well as the books and authors included. Because the question of what to read next is the best prelude to even more important ones, like who to be and how to live. To get lost in a book, be it a story or a study, is inherently to acknowledge the voice of another, to broaden one's perspective beyond the confines of one's own understanding. A good book is the opposite of a selfie. The right book at the right time can expand our lives in the way love does, making us more thoughtful, more generous, more brave, more alert to the world's wonders and more pained by its inequities, more wise, more kind. Oh, beautiful, Jim. Jim, thank you for having such a rich literary life, and thank you for being our guest on The Literary Life. Thank you, Mitchell. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, and I can't wait to do our battle, either virtually or in Miami. Absolutely. The book is A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die, available, available through your favorite indie bookstore, through booksandbooks.com, or through bookshop.org. Again, thank you, Jim. Thank you, Mitchell.